0: Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our regular Thursday time slot this week at 10.30 a.m. June 7th. As they say in the business, news happens fast here in Washington, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Good morning. And Alice Alstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. We also have an interview this week with Matt Isles. He's the brand new president and CEO of America's Health Insurance Plans, the health insurance industry trade group. And just so you know, we're taking the pod on the road this month, so our schedule might get a little wonky. We'll be coming to you from San Francisco next week, and from Spotlight Health at the Aspen Ideas Festival the week after. And that's a good thing because the building next to ours here in Washington is coming down, so if you hear banging in the background, that's what it is, probably. (laughs) Anyway... Lots of news this week, but it's all kind of related to what I want to talk about first, which is the state of health care in the midterm election campaigns. Um, from everything I can discern, Democrats seem to still want to use health care as a major, if not the major, campaign platform uh, going forward into the fall. And I look no further than the dueling Tuesday press conferences in the Senate following the respective party lunches. Republican Leader Mitch McConnell came out, talked about canceling the August recess and all the things he plans to have the Senate take up that month and. And the words "healthcare" never crossed his lips. Five minutes later, Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer came out and said Democrats would try to force a long list of healthcare votes in August. So, what happened to the plotline that this wasn't going to be a healthcare election
1: for like the first time in a decade? Stephanie. Actually, I think that there has been a sense for quite some time that healthcare was going to be a really big election issue. Um, I think that Republicans um, were very concerned about this because of the failed repeal. They really want to have a message that they've done something after promising for, what, eight years now to do repeal, which is why they're really hanging a lot of things on this rule that's supposed to come out to make association health plans. Like, they want to have that as their talking point. And Democrats are just ginned up. They think they have the advantage on this. They think that they're trying to play it as the Republicans have sabotaged the ACA. That's why premiums are going up. But the Democrats I've talked to who are um, doing a lot of their campaign planning really are trying to move away just from the Republicans have messed this up message to something that's more forward what they want to bring to the table what they where they see things going and they're a little divided between expanding the ACA or um, doing some kind of like single-payer public a little divided yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but I think they're a lot divided yeah I think this frankly I think that here in DC we're not talking heavily about health care there's immigration so many other things on the table but when you go out there and talk to people this is a huge issue for them they really care and I think that you're we're going to hear so much more about health care I really do. Well, that's what I keep hearing. You know, I look at these sort of although every time there's a you know this
0: state had its primary, and by the way, healthcare was a huge issue for the voters.
2: Absolutely, and so I, I think Stephanie's right that Democrats are both pointing to the premium increases that are trickling out now, which
0: we'll talk about in a minute. States,
2: uh, state rate filings showing large premium increases and. Pointing to that and saying this is directly because of Trump administration policies, which the insurance companies themselves are saying. So they're they're on solid ground there with that claim, but also saying, and we have all these plans to address the problem. The Republicans just won't let us take up them in Congress and have a vote.
3: This is really galvanizing. Democrats in particular, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation did a poll and found that this was the top issue for voters who want to talk about issues. Obviously, President Trump kind of blocks out the sun on all of this, and the election is a bit of a referendum on him. Right. But, and
0: that's the traditional take, that the, yes. that the midterms are a referendum on the president.
3: Yes. Um, but I think that House Democrats are increasingly confident that they can get the net 23 seats they need to retake the House. It's tougher in the Senate, obviously, they need a two net uh, seat game there. But um, for Republicans, healthcare was not as big an issue in that poll. It was fourth uh, down below with the economy and guns and immigration. So I think for Republicans, it's it's something that they don't really want to be talking about quite as much. But Democrats, as you mentioned, Schumer came out and laid out this five-part agenda. Um, they didn't go for single payer healthcare, but, but they, they did, did talk do a about Medicare the fi- buy-in. 55-year-old yeah. buy-in and, and other things and beefing up the subsidies and So forth. So I think we're, I think everyone's right. We're going to continue to see this. Um, I think that in particular races, that we will also, this will really be a big issue in particular races that we can talk about.
1: And you also see um, re- one issue for Republicans, too, is that they're also divided. There's, you know, a, a coalition that's trying to bring up repeal again, um, believe it or not. But I think that's... The, and you wrote about it. <laughs> yeah, but the Republicans that I've talked with and the Hill staff I've talked with on the Republican side are concerned about this because they don't want the attention brought up about their failed repeal efforts. So this is also kind of a a tricky point for Republicans, too.
0: So, yeah, so which I guess makes sense for why Democrats might try to bring it up. And I mean, if they actually used the August recess to do spending bills, which is what McConnell was saying, those are openly amendable so that they could. So Democrats actually could, you know, force some of these health care votes if they really wanted to, which maybe that's their goal to make Senator McConnell rethink staying here in August.
2: (laughs) And I think it's interesting that the chatter about another repeal effort in August has pretty much faded away Um, when the key senators uh, on the Republican side like Senator uh, Collins was asked about it she just said no we are not doing this bad idea and of course they would
0: absolutely need her vote (laughs) if this were to succeed
2: her her and others
0: (laughs) others who voted no last year exactly
2: so everyone's pretty much acknowledged that that is not happening and they're sort of not even ginning it up as rev up the base kind of issue.
0: Although I think they're still probably going to unveil this proposal, right? So they, yes. so that they can look like they'll have they have yes. some plan out That's there. Right. But,
1: right. Right. Yes. But then they can also use that for Republicans who don't take it up and not give their support these these groups to those Republicans. So it's kind of a difficult issue for Republicans as well or they're going to come down on this.
0: And yet. Voters care about
1: it. So. <laughs> they do. They do. And, you know, but another issue that it's not, you know, you have to think about it. This is a lot of focus on the individual market here, and that's not the the big picture. 5% a lo- of right, people a lot with of, insurance. A lot of this also boils down to what's happening with Medicaid in the states. There's, you know, just this burgeoning interest. So people care about the status of the government's role in health care. Which we're also about to get to.
3: <laughs> Just throwing in one little more one, one more poll, um, I thought it was interesting that another poll by Kaiser that came out earlier this year said that 74% of people polled support Medicare, Medicaid. Um, it was either somewhat or very favorable. So it, the more they talk about getting rid of Medicaid, the more people seem to be willing to defend it.
1: Well, one last point not to uh, push the Wall Street Journal, but we have a very interesting poll coming out on this. So (laughs) I will let you know, but it's it's fascinating.
2: Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, related to the politics, we had more states file proposed rates for the individual health insurance market this week. Actually, the proposed increases in Pennsylvania and Maine uh, are in the single digits, which is smaller than many expected. But uh, in Washington and New York, they're in the 20 percent range, and that's an average. Uh, In all four states, though, as Alice mentioned, insurers are blaming the repeal of the individual mandate and the possible availability of skimpier type plans for the rate hikes. Is this good or bad for the Democrats who want to blame the ACA's woes on the Republicans? I mean, on the one hand, I assume
1: Democrats don't want to applaud really big rate hikes on the other. That's, then they want to say, your fault. That's the ironic twist here, is that before when premiums went up, when the ACA was in place, Democrats were like, oh, this is because of that. It's not that big a deal. And now they're like, whoa, look at the rates going up. When in fact, I actually think that we're going to see rates go up, but but perhaps not as substantial as they did in 2018. But it is a real striking messaging shift that's going on.
2: But the the, um, the rate filings are, even even though the final uh, rules have not yet been written on the association health plans and the short-term plans, those are expected basically at any, any moment. Time. Uh, it could happen while we're recording this. <laughs> um, but uh, even though those haven't come out yet, the insurers still have to plan for the possibility and are raising rates to cover their their risk on that. And so that but the, but that's a complicated message. So basically it's going to be a messaging war in the midterms and it's this is the Affordable Care Act. It is completely a Democratic product. Republicans are not responsible for this versus this is happening under unified Republican control of government.
0: And there are things that they did that the yes. insurers say are driving the increases.
2: Sure. But pointing to future risk from Association Health, plan, that gets so muddled that I don't know if the average voter is going to um, go with Democrats on that particular point. I One think thing I was, that was interesting,
3: um, there are nine states that have come out with their filing. So far. And we have to remind people that these are the initial rate filings. These are not the final Uh, rates that will be coming out in September, October, um, right before open enrollment starts in November and right before the election, by the way. Um, But the states that have come out, um, we saw in New York, I thought it was really interesting that they divided it out. They said that we're going to have a 24% increase, 12% would be the normal increase, 12% is due to the individual mandate repeal, effective repeal. So, um, and in Washington, which had a 19% average increase, the commissioner also was talking uh, very, very aggressively about the impact of the Trump administration policies. The states that have come out with their rates so far are states that generally, most of them generally favor the ACA, um, have done their best to try to implement it. And we'll see what happens going forward. Um, I think that um, one thing that's also interesting to remember is that in a normal year, if we didn't have the repeal of the individual mandate, if we didn't have the association health plans and the short-term plans coming out, that this actually would be a year where we wouldn't see huge increases on the premium side. The The insurers have kind of gotten past the initial shock and problems that they had. But um, because of these things, we're seeing a different story. Well, and also
0: important to, to remember that they had sort of, we had some really huge rate increases last year. I mean, Pennsylvania, which is looking at sort of low single-digit raises had like 30% increases last year. So some of this sort of got built in in anticipation of of what happened. But yeah, I think there, I mean, I was at an insurance event Earlier this week, and talking to some insurance company CEOs, and they're all, you know, pretty pretty unhappy. You know, they've been working really hard to to try to make it work in this market, um, and they have been sort of thwarted at at every step. Um, But I think one thing apparently they don't have to worry about is that at at an oversight House hearing yesterday, HHS Secretary Alex Azar said that they would not ban silver loading for 2019, which is something that insurers had been working uh, had been worried about. Um, Who wants to take a take a Whack at explaining what
1: silver loading is. Silver loading is basically what happened is that some of the most popular plans, uh, insurance regulators allowed the premium hikes to largely be put on those plans. And it's sort of this ironic twist because the amount of subsidy that someone get is tied in part to the premiums on those plans. So... Uh, if premiums were tied up, in total to the Yeah, of the yeah, plan. well it's, it also takes into account people's income in terms of subsidies. Right. So basically what happened is that as the premium costs went up the amount of subsidies also went up for these people. So people were actually buffered from the cost increases and in some cases were able to go to cheaper plans. Um, so this has kind of had the ironic or, or unexpected effect of even though these costs are going up, many people who get subsidies are not feeling it. The other interesting point I just wanted to say on the insurer premium rates is we are also seeing some insurers coming into the market. We're seeing some expansions. Um, and fewer uh, some areas with, uh, with more than one insurer in counties that only had one, insurers have been making money on the ACA now. And so I think that's going to be something to watch for this year. Because they've hiked premiums. And, I
0: mean, seriously, in, in large, in, in many cases, they're making t- money because they've gotten premiums to a pretty high place. Yes,
1: in some cases a bit overzealously, which perhaps is why they may not be as high this year. Rebecca, you were going to say something.
3: Well, Stephanie did a wonderful job. So l- let me just um, go back and, and uh, mention one thing. You know, earlier this year, Congress got rid of the health insurance tax. And normally that would mitigate some of the issues, but it doesn't seem to be having as big an effect because of all of this uncertainty. Right. And this this is a
0: a per head tax that health insurers pay um, to to fund other pieces of the ACA. Exactly. And they hated it. Yes. (laughs) Although it's not it's not gone, right? It's just it's delayed. Temporary. It's one of those that's, that's like the Cadillac act that they keep putting off.
3: Right. They tempor- temporarily delayed it before and now they're doing it again for a longer period.
0: All right. Well, also related to politics, the trustees of the Medicare program released their annual report this week, and it finds that the trust fund that supports the hospital insurance part of the program will start running out of money three years earlier than was projected last year. Now, projections about Medicare's financial future fluctuate a lot, but Anytime the insolvency date gets closer, somebody gets blamed. Might this end up playing a role
3: in the campaign too? I think that one thing that was interesting is that the Florida Democratic Party immediately sent out a press release talking about Rick Scott, and they said Republicans are targeting Medicare. Medicare is always perennially an issue that gets Rick Scott, the Republican governor, running for Senate. Exactly right. Yes, Um, that he. They reminded people of his history as uh, the leader of Columbia HCA Hospital Chain. And how he he was in charge when they had a1.5 billion dollar Medicare fraud settlement, which is was at the time the largest in in history. And so um, there is certainly something to be said about the fact that a lot of the reasons behind the issues with the deterioration of the trust of the trust fund, the hospital trust fund, are due to actions that Congress has taken. They got rid of the individual mandate, which means that there'll be more uninsured people, and that means that hospitals will have more uncompensated care and bad debt. Um, They also uh, lowered the payroll taxes on Social Security. They got rid of the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which never was constituted, and who knows whether it would have been effective, but uh, they got rid of that, and the actuaries had given some credit to its effect over time. So there were other things that were not related to the actions that Congress had taken, um, like lower wages, but I think the Democrats do have an argument to make, so we'll probably see more of that. Yes, you
2: know, it, I, oh good! Oh yeah, I was very interested to see a much louder reaction from Democrats than Republicans. I was expecting Republicans to jump on the report to call for massive entitlement reform. You know, this shows that we have a crisis and we really have to. um I mean, they before what Paul Ryan usually exactly, says when exactly, it gets closer, this is Paul Ryan's bread and butter. And there was largely silence on the Republican side, and perhaps that's because it's getting worse under Republicans' control of government. <laughs> Back to that again, but. Um, But yes, Democrats are definitely pointing to last year's uh, tax overhaul as, as a key culprit.
0: And, you know, one of the things that, that it's worth remembering is that in 2010, when the Republicans swamped the Democrats and took back Congress, the the everybody, you know, remembers, yeah, it was the Affordable Care Act, but it was actually the Medicare pieces of the Affordable Care Act that the Republicans ran on. It was these, you know, they're taking... Robbing
2: s-
4: Medicare. Right. They're pay, taking yeah. these
0: hundreds of billions of dollars out of Medicare. Of course, when the Republicans got in, they, you know, all of their repeal and replace didn't repeal the Medicare cut. Right. But that's what they ran on in the fall of 2010. I mean, Medicare... Particularly Particularly in an off-year election, seniors tend to vote disproportionately, and they care about Medicare disproportionately, so... Wondering if this might might end up just sort of playing into the narrative of the year.
3: One thing I want to remind people about is that, you know, when the trustees came out and said that there were three fewer years that that the trust fund would be exhausted three years earlier than expected, this is something that's happened before. We've seen this before, and we're
0: still right. not all that close. It's like it's what, eight like, years, yeah. right? And we, we've so, been down to two or three. Well, we've
3: actually the last time that we were uh, pretty close was in 1997 when they were four years away. They came in, they did the balanced budget. Amendment, made lots of Medicare cuts, eventually gave some of them back. but um, And then, again, they were close in 2009. 2009. And then the health care law was put in place, and that created some cuts. So Congress has a history of taking care of this, and we'll see. Well, yeah, I mean that's
0: the the balance here is that what makes what extends the trust fund is spending less on Medicare. So if you if you make cuts to Medicare, it makes the the long term finances look better. But it's politically unpopular when you add to Medicare. It obviously unless you pay for it, it will make the tr- the it will exhaust the trust fund faster. So And
2: the president campaigned explicitly on not cutting Medicare and Social Security. Now whether that whole oh, budget, yeah, yes, <laughs> now that he's in office is is a different story. But possibly some of of the muted uh, calls for that on the Republican side are due to uh, uncertainty about whether or not the president would be on board.
3: He also called for not cutting Medicaid. And I yes. sort of remember something about Medicaid of last year. We
0: should
2: all be skeptical.
0: Well, good. I want to talk about Medicaid. Um, Arkansas has become the first state to implement its work requirement for Medicaid. It wasn't the first one to get approved, but it is the first one to put it into effect. Alice, you wrote about it. Tell us what you found.
2: So a piece of it. So not only is it the first one to go into effect, which already makes it newsworthy and and people will be watching closely for the impact because that will tell us what's going to happen in the three other states that have been approved and the eight more that are in the queue, according to CMS. So what I found really interesting about Arkansas is that they require people to file their proof of work hours online only. There is no option to do it over the phone or in person or by mail. And Arkansas actually has the second worst rate in the country of home internet access. A lot of rural swaths of the state, have very poor internet access, even you know low-income urban residents as well. And so folks are really concerned that people simply won't be able to comply even if they are working the number of required hours. Another issue is that the state is really dependent on agricultural work, which is, of course, seasonal. And this is a strict monthly number of hours you have to work, which doesn't account for the real world where hours vary throughout the year and so i think folks are very concerned that thousands of people are going to be losing their benefits and it'll be under the microscope for sure
0: what do they say about you know why they're requiring this online only if most people don't have internet access <laughs>
2: so i i thought the state's response was very interesting one they just admit that it's cheaper and easier for the state itself which sure of course um and more they fish. don't
0: have to hire a lot of people to take in paperwork.
2: Absolutely, it's more efficient. It's cheaper. Um, that all makes sense. Um, but I also thought it was a little bit <laughs> rich that uh, the state is claiming that this will really help spread computer literacy. So, one, they're implying that people who don't have access to the internet don't know how to use it, which may or may not be true. But also, requiring someone to use something they don't have teaches them how to have it somehow it, it a little Aren't bit they gonna make
0: you know thing make places available i mean
2: they are going to centers centers have or? health providers be able to walk people through the process but again i mean they're just some part and so the urban institute also did a study of the people expected to lose their benefits under this um under this new law and uh More than 30% of them didn't have home internet access. Also, more than 30% of them did not have access to a vehicle. So even getting to a library or a community center or medical center in order to complete this would be a a challenge. Or a job, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Although I mean presumably you can work from home although it's hard to work from home if you don't have internet access. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> I think what's really interesting too with Medicaid right now is we're sort of seeing these push this push develop where you're having Republican leadership sometimes being the one that's that's in standing in the way or trying to figure out how to deal with this growing support for Medicaid expansion, you know, whether it be in Maine, in terms of there being... That the, was my next thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or you're seeing ballot initiatives in areas mm-hmm. that have um, Republican gubernatorial control where they're saying, okay, we'll go with the will, even though, I mean, it's really putting this interesting dynamic between voters and um, the governors in some cases. Yeah, so the, uh, so the other news, the big Medicaid state news this week was out of Maine.
0: Um, you may remember last November, voters overwhelmingly approved an Initiative calling for Maine to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, except Republican Governor Paul LePage has so far ignored that. Now a judge has ordered LePage to submit documents to expand Medicaid by next Monday. Is there um, any th-
1: indication that's going to happen? I think they're going to appeal. Yeah, that's my yeah. By before I think they'll appeal rather than file. Something so he can on the appeal 11th, to the but, state Supreme Court. Yeah, judicial. Yeah, yeah. It's so at the
2: superior. This was a superior court ruling, so it would go to the go state to the Supreme, Supreme court.
1: court. Right. So I, that's my expectation ex- Expectation, you're right, I could be totally surprised, but I still think this is going to continue to be fought as a legal battle, which, you know, even in Kentucky, they are looking to expand and, and there's a lawsuit. I think the first um, opening arguments are this month, uh, maybe even next week. So a week from Friday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, the fate of some of these is still really up in the air. But that that's the Kentucky work requirement, right? Yes. Yeah. Right, right. That's... And other changes. They have like premiums and yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
3: It's it's interesting as you think about the states. I mean, there are there were ten Republican governors and two independents who did expand Medicaid, and they did that in part because the business community, the hospitals, they are all pushing for this. In in Ohio, the religious groups got together and pushed for it. But it is interesting to think about what the future of Medicaid expansion might be now that we've got thirty four jurisdictions moving forward, and of, of the 70s, you're
0: including Maine, right? I'm including Maine. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm optimistic.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um So, so um, one thing that I think advocates for Medicaid expansion are really watching in terms of the elections are our governor's races. There's a governor's race in Florida that they're watching pretty closely. Um, the history in Florida is very convoluted. Rick Scott, when he was governor, Said, he still is governor. He's been yes, governor the whole time. Exactly. So so he's, he came out sort of in favor of, of expansion, but never really pushed for it. It got stopped in the legislature. Now we've got um, Democrats who are, are very much for expansion. Um, Gwen Graham is actually came out with an ad yesterday, her first ad, and she mentioned Medicaid expansion there. And Florida would be a huge win for the advocates because 900,000 people or so would, would yeah, join the, us
0: the biggest state that hasn't expanded, Well, right? Texas is the biggest, oh. but
3: Florida is next and, you know, followed by North Carolina, Georgia. Yeah, let me rephrase. Texas. Florida is the biggest state that hasn't expanded that might. That might. <laughs> and and we don't know that they will. I mean, everything has to line up perfectly for it to happen. But I think advocates are, are so eager to see something like that happen, especially in a state like Florida.
1: And then you have like California that's looking at expanding Medicaid to um, mm-hmm. undocumented um, individuals which they they looked at this initially and dropped it after Trump was elected so where that goes will be fascinating to watch i think
3: mm-hmm. i think they do cover undocumented yes guests. but
1: it's it's a, expanding Adult, yes, it to adults exactly. right right
2: who are the majority of their remaining uninsured right. population yes.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it feels like what we're getting though is states that are more and more different from each other. I mean, both in yeah. terms of it's the you know, divide, the, that's the individual happening. market, and now in terms of Medicaid, we're sort of back to where you know the, the Affordable Care Act was intended to create a federal floor, and that's apparently not happening. <laughs> well, we're going
1: we're going back the other way, and the Association Health Plan rule that's coming out will I think likely continue that, depending on how much state regulations is allowed.
0: All right, well, much more to come. That is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with Matt Isles. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. So we are pleased to welcome to the podcast Matt Isles, the brand new president and CEO of America's Health Insurance Plans, the Washington-based trade group of the health insurance industry. Matt has worked for AHIP since 2015, first as executive vice president and then as chief operating officer. He succeeds Marilyn Tavner, a former head of Medicare and Medicaid during the Obama administration. Welcome to the podcast.
4: Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, For our listeners who might be newish to health policy, tell us what AHIP is and who it represents these days.
4: Sure. AHIP is the National Trade Association that represents um, companies that offer coverage in health-related services. So really insurance coverage, um, comprehensive medical coverage, Medicare Advantage plans, Medicaid. But we also represent non-major medical or supplemental carriers that might offer dental or vision. We really cover the entire waterfront when it comes to insurance coverage products.
0: Um, and, but you don't have as many members as you had some some
4: years ago, right? Actually, our, our membership has been growing uh, recently, uh, particularly as we have focused um, on Medicaid. Medicaid has really been an important growth engine for coverage generally and also for AHIP. And many of our new members are focused on the Medicaid segment. I mean, as you know, uh, with Medicaid expansion, a lot more people have coverage through Medicaid. So AHIP has adjusted. And also we spend a lot more of our time these days on Medicaid
0: and we should point out, a lot of those people who have expanded Medicaid are in are, are covered by private managed care plans.
4: That's right. That's right. Out of the 70 million or so uh, Americans that get Medicaid coverage, about 55 million or so are covered through Medicaid managed care companies.
0: And and those are ones, uh, many of them you represent. Yes,
4: many of them we do.
0: So you've been in your position for almost a week now. Almost. <laughs> almost. Uh, what are your immediate goals for AHIP?
4: Sure. Um, great question. So I really want to build on the progress that Marilyn Tavener, as you mentioned, Julie, my former boss, a, a wonderful woman who I really enjoyed working with for the past three years, um, really build on the progress with respect to growing our membership, representing the entirety of the industry, and also shifting to make sure that we are squarely focused on consumers and what consumers really need in the healthcare system and how can we make their healthcare experience Better and simpler. We know it's not easy these days navigating the healthcare system, but we think there's a great opportunity to help them.
0: What's the state of the individual insurance market? The not just the the exchanges, but places where people actually buy their own insurance. It, it, it has been there. You guys were complaining rather loudly last year.
4: The individual market is challenged, uh, to say the least, um, really has been probably the most tumultuous segment of the insurance market overall. Um, there's been a lot of challenges, whether it be on the policy side and regulatory changes. Um, we've seen the elimination of the individual mandate. And so as a result, we've seen premiums rise substantially over the past couple of years. But we're really focused on how we can make coverage more affordable and, and trying to help these individuals, because unless you get a subsidy today for those people who are essentially earning less than 400 percent of the federal poverty level, um, so 90,000 for, a, you know, or so for a family of four. Um, You're on your own, and the premiums can be very expensive. So how can we make sure that they have access to coverage that they can afford? Um, We see the challenges continuing as we think about 2019 premiums. We're probably looking at uh, double-digit, you know, teen increases overall. I mean, that's an average. It will obviously vary depending upon market. Um, Some states have more stability, California. Other states, you know, have bigger challenges. And so what we're really trying to do is to make sure that we can help, get some stabilization measures in place over the long term.
0: That was my next question. What what should happen? I mean, what would would actually help shore up the market, if possible, for 2019?
4: Right. So at this point, it's probably about too late for 2019. I think um, when you think about the insurance product cycle and, and open enrollment period that would start, say, in November of this year for 2019, I mean, that window is rapidly closing. So a couple of states have been trying to put in place some premium reduction programs, uh, so-called reinsurance program to push down premiums. Um, But that window, at least in terms of what we can really do to affect 2019, is closing. And we're really looking a little bit longer term, probably, with respect to efforts, whether it be regulatory or perhaps in a new Congress that might look to um, enact some sort of uh, market stability measures.
0: Were you in favor of the the market stability measures that didn't happen earlier this spring? We were
4: very strongly in favor of the package that came together. Um, We thought it was the right policy. It would have included funding the so-called cost sharing reduction payments Um, that would have pushed down premiums It had a reinsurance component. It had a state flexibility component. Um, Really, at the end of the day, the politics, unfortunately, got in the way of being able to move forward with a with a package. But we're focused in terms of trying how we can do that over the long run.
0: Well speaking of politics, pretty much every poll shows that health care is a major issue for voters in particular health care costs um, people you know blame the industry uh, in in general and and Democrats like to blame the health insurance industry in particular. What what can insurers do to help sort of stem the rapidly rising costs of health care?
4: Right. So so our members and health insurance companies generally really are focused on negotiating lower prices, whether it be um, when you go to the hospital, whether when you get your prescription drug filled at the pharmacy. I mean, that's really the primary goal is in terms of getting a better deal and lower prices for consumers. You know, as we think about affordability writ large, that's really a bigger problem that brings in things like uh, what's happening with consolidation or what's happening with prescription drug prices overall and and how insurers really can try and move towards a value-based system rather than paying for volume. Many of our members and the entire industry Are focused on partnerships um, and how can you share in both the upside and the downside risk, um, for example, with providers that if they are able to come in um, at a less expensive amount, there will be benefits for them. And how can we pay really for an episode of care so you're not just paying piecemeal like we have been doing for years and years and years?
0: There are some analysts who are starting to say that the, the Affordable Care Act's requirement that insurers you know, only uh, be allowed to, to keep a certain percentage of, of each you know, premium dollar for themselves and that they have to pay the rest of that in medical claims actually gives insurers an incentive not to bargain down prices because that percentage that they get to keep will go up if the whole pie gets bigger. Um, is, is that something that needs to be addressed? That, that would seem to be sort of an incentive flaw.
4: Um, I think when the MLR was put in place, I think a lot of insurance companies thought it was the wrong approach fundamentally. I don't know that it has led to an effort by insurers to negotiate less vigorously than they ever had and think about but
0: they have an incentive when they're, to when negotiate they're, less vigorously um,
4: well but at the same time if if costs rise faster you're going to lose customers because people are going to say this this is this product isn't affordable and so um, while there could definitely be improvements for example to mlR or getting rid of it or some of the incentives there um, at the same time I think just the focus on affordability and Can an individual kind of business afford this product really has had insurers try to negotiate the best price over time. But there are some incentive flaws. Absolutely, Julie.
0: So Republicans keep talking about possibly having another run at repeal and replace, um, but but one of the sort of big efforts seems on the Republican side seems to be to turn insurance back to the states, essentially sort of pre ACA, you know, in in how they would do it. Would that be better for the insurance industry to, to go back to having to to deal with fifty different insurance regulators, or would you rather have sort of a more workable federal framework?
4: I, I think I think it's a little of both. I think a more workable federal framework um, would certainly be helpful, but. Still- States will always play an important role in insurance markets. When you think about where healthcare is delivered, of course, it's the most local service that you can get. Right, you can't sort of transport it uh, from one state to another, except for maybe in the instance nowadays of telemedicine, where, where we're evolving it in that in that regard. Um, I think it's it's a trend that we're going to continue to see, at least in terms of trying to give more authority and flexibility back to the states. I think the question is, what's the right overall balance to make sure that um, people, for example, with pre-existing conditions, you know, are protected, and that some of those important gains um, aren't undone at the same time, given more flexibility to get some more affordable products out there on the market.
0: Last question. Um, obviously, lots of Democrats are talking about uh, Medicare for all single payer, although, as we pointed out at the top, both Medicare and Medicaid have now lots of, uh, of private insurance that sort of operate underneath them. Um, in that sense, I could, could you see the insurance industry supporting a, a Medicare for all?
4: I, I think there's some challenges with Medicare for all in that regard, Julie. I mean, while, of course, there are Are benefits to the Medicare program, but there are 180 million individuals who have employer-sponsored coverage. There's 70 million who are covered uh, through Medicaid and others. And if we were going to go to purely a Medicare system, that would be, I think, a challenge uh, for many. But we know that it's a debate that's coming, and we want to make sure people recognize the value that, that private health insurers are bringing, and we think that there's a really important role for them to play going forward.
0: Well, much more to discuss going forward. Thank you, Matt Isles. Thank you, Julie. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a health story they read recently. They think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss one. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org.
3: Who wants to go first this week? Rebecca? So I chose one from ProPublica. It's hundreds of Illinois children languish in psychiatric hospitals after they're cleared for release. And this was a really fascinating story. They start with an anecdote about a 12-year-old named Gabriel who is in this psychiatric facility. He's, he's not able to leave. the He's in the custody of the state because his grandmother can't take care of him. And he's got behavioral health problems. And they they clear him for release, but they can't find anywhere for him to go. They can't find a foster home. They can't find a residential facility. And the state is not doing enough to make that happen, and so um, ProPublica went and they they used FOIA and other open records requests in L- Illinois to try to document how many kids are in this situation, and it's really just a sad tale. I mean, you think about how time is different for children and adults, and how time moves so slowly for them in some ways, and the idea of some of them staying for months. At, one anecdote in the story was seven months after the kid had been cleared for release. And it's it's just a terrible, a terrible thing that actually should never happen. And um, the state is under pressure to try to remedy it. They have staffing problems and budget problems. They recognize that there's a problem, but hopefully there'll be some sort of resolution. Alice. So I was very interested
2: in a piece in Politico this week uh, that came out yesterday uh, about the president seeking to reorganize the federal government and consolidate various social safety net programs into HHS, including food stamps, which are currently under USDA. And Uh, He would also like to rebrand the department and uh, bring the W word back, welfare, which was part of um, the department's title for decades, but was changed to Health and Human Services. And I just think this has a lot of very interesting implications. I mean, language matters, and there are a lot of very charged connotations with the word welfare and a lot of attempts already from this administration to brand programs like Medicare and Medicaid, which are, uh, well, uh, Medicare and Social Security are entitlement programs. Um, And I just think that the attempts to reframe something like insurance, shared risk, benefits everyone as, you know, these lazy people on the dole. Um, (laughs) uh, And I think that it's part of a political context in which um, people are seeking cuts and restrictions and work requirements and drug tests in Wisconsin and potentially other states. Um, So I, I think it's one, it may never happen because Congress would need to be on board. <laughs> but I think that it is a strong sign of the thinking of the administration.
0: My, my only comment is that I covered uh, when they took Social Security out of the Department of Health and Human Services, and it took decades to get it out to become an independent agency. So the idea that, that they would just like, oh, yeah, we're going to take food stamps. We're going to take the biggest program in the Agriculture Department, put it in HHS and rebrand HHS. My, uh, I wish them good luck. <laughs>
1: Stephanie. Um, I picked a story um, from Kaiser Health News by, I'm probably going to say the name wrong, so excuse me, Barbara Feder ostroff mm-hmm. um, And it ran uh, June 6th, and it's called Outsiders Swoop in Vowing to Rescue Rural Hospitals Short on Hope and Money. Um, and this story really looks strongly at a hospital in Cedarville, California, a rural hospital, and how it's uh, struggling and outsiders coming in with ideas for how it could become a money-making um, enterprise by doing 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 telemedicine um, in a broader jurisdiction and area. But what's really striking about the story and why I recommend it is that it, well, it tells the story about the situation at this hospital. It's a really good overview of what's happening to rural hospitals and the demise of rural hospitals and why that is so significant for communities and these hospitals' efforts to to try to to stay afloat. Um, So it's really well done. And especially the way it focuses in this one hospital, you get a really good education about what's going on at the macro level. And also great Great photos. Amazing photos, yes.
0: Good men, people go there. All right, mine is from Mother Jones,
1: and it's called, I kid
0: you not, Behave More Sexually, How Big Pharma Used Strippers, Guns, and Cash to Push Opioids. It's by uh, Julie Lurie, and it's based on documents from a series of whistleblower lawsuits from former employees of a fentanyl maker. Fentanyl is one of the most potent and dangerous prescription opioids. It details how former sales representatives, and I will quote from the story here, took doctors to strip clubs, fancy dinners, parties, and shooting ranges so that the doctor then returned the favor to the sales representative by prescribing subsys. That's the drug in question. Um, it's nothing we haven't seen before, but it is still quite the read. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay I'm at Rebecca Adams. Stacey.
2: I'm at Alice Ulstein. At Steph Armor. One.
0: We will be back in your feed from California next week. In the meantime, be healthy.